Hello all, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whenever you are watching the, this podcast, and welcome to the Goddess Project podcast. My name is Dr. Carla Ionescu. <laughs> Actually, my name is just Carla Ionescu, but I earned that doctor, and so I'm keeping it. This week, we are talking about Skilla, the sea monster Skilla, and of course, Caridis. Um, sometimes referred to as her sister, but often um, there are these two female monsters on opposing sides of a small um, venue in the ocean. Yeah? So we'll talk about that in a little bit of detail. I wanted to get a few things, sort of technic no, not technicalities. Whenever I have my classes, I'm always like, okay, guys, so let's get over, let's get some technicalities, questions, thoughts, concerns. Um, and so I think I'm feeling that right now. Um, if you have, if you're new to the podcast, welcome, welcome, prepare yourself to be, um, inspired and interested by some of the material that we're covering today. Feel free to browse through the podcasts and the episodes that, um, I've previously had. This is my first season of the goddess project podcast. I envision that the seasons will have about 20 episodes each, and so this is episode 12. So we're getting there. We're getting there, uh, which is really exciting. I'm going to do one more episode on monsters. So next week's episode is going to be on harpies and the furies, just because I um, am reading uh, Jess Zimmerman's book, um, Women and Other Monsters. And I used to teach a course at Trent University for many years. It was called uh, Gods and Monsters. My that's pretty basic. And the harpies and the furies always get just like the other female monsters always get a bit of a, a bad rap. And so I thought that we would kind of wrap up this monster section with those two characters. And then after that, I'd like to go back to a few goddesses that perhaps again, um, are often misunderstood. So if you don't know, or if you're new to the podcast, my main research project and the sort of goddess that rules my life is the goddess Artemis. I wrote a book called She Who Hunts right here. Oh, you can find it anywhere. Um, Amazon, Indigo, wherever you buy your books, Kindle, etc. So I'm very excited about this book and I'm very excited that there are so many people reading it. It's quite short, which I did on purpose because I want this to be a, an academic book in some ways, but an academic book in, that all of us can enjoy, right? So sometimes you write an academic book and it's very textbooky, but I really wanted to use primary source because I love primary source. Some of you know that because that's what storytelling tell, time is. Um, and so I really love primary source, but, and I wanted you to have primary source also because I'm a big believer in primary source as the first part of where you begin your research. And so, um, and so I've, the feedback has been that it's quite enjoyable, which I really, really like. And um, I'm working on a few other projects on Artemis moving forward. As some of you may have heard or know, um, I'm going to be touring the USA uh, this summer. I'm leaving in two weeks. I'm leaving July 11th and I'm going to be touring on my motorcycle vroom, vroom, vroom. Um, and we're going to hit some museums. So I'm, I would really love to share with you guys some of my travel vlogs, but since I'm a noob to YouTube, uh, 
I'm not sure how to divide up <laughs> podcast category, travel vlog category, shorts category, that kind of stuff, but I'll figure it out. Um, so if you're interested in that, um, I'll probably post some videos, uh, especially of my, my museum. I love museums everywhere I go. Uh, I'm going to hit the museums. And then I'm also going to go to a few gardens. I don't know if you're into gardens, but I really love like big botanical gardens and I'm fascinated by them. So I'm going to do that this summer. And um, then I'm going to head to Crete uh, in the fall for some research. And most excitedly, I will be going on an Arctic expedition in November in the Arctic. Uh, it's, we're going to meet, it's going to be 40 women from all over the world, indigenous, non-indigenous, it's going to be super exciting. And we're going to go together. We're going to snorkel in the Arctic. We're going to collect data in the Arctic. Uh, we're going to swim with whales in the Arctic. So it's, it's a research project. It's not um, a tourist thing. It's a research project. And it involves scientists and storytellers and artists and filmmakers. Anyway, and anybody who cares about climate change and cares about the whales and cares about indigenous culture uh, would be fascinated, I think, by this massive project that is happening, this expedition. So if you're so inclined, um, I am one of the 40 women to go, but we all have to pay our own way since this, you know, as you know, most research is uh, privately or publicly funded. And so I have a GoFundMe. I've never done a GoFundMe before. It's kind of vulnerable to have a GoFundMe. So I'm going to place the link of the GoFundMe in, um, in the description for this. If you are so inclined, the it'll have all the details of the expeditions. It has all the details of the organization, the researchers, the research that we're doing, everything, uh, the the, where the funding goes, all that kind of information. So if you are so inclined, I would really appreciate some of your support. Um, you know, contract professors such as myself are not always the best funded uh, by university programs. And uh, if you're in Canada, you know that universities in Canada have pretty much scrapped uh, tenure track positions. Um, and so anyway, that's a side rant, uh, but it is unlikely that in our lifetime we'll get tenure track positions. And so we work, like for me, I work at five different university and colleges in order to, you know, pay for everything. So I would really appreciate your support if you're so inclined. Again, uh, you know, obviously all of it is voluntary, but, uh, and, or if you know somebody or a philanthropist or an organization or somebody that would be like, whoa, this is so cool. Look at all these women doing this, you know, fantastic where the women that I'm with are fantastic I mean I'm the only mythologist that I know of uh the others to me are fan like they're I, I look at their resumes and I'm like wow <laughs> wow imposter syndrome much yeah yeah imposter syndrome so but I'm going you know I was elected so I'm excited uh, so that is sort of the updates of what's going on and what will be happening, let's say, in my life for the next six months. So now that you're all updated, let's um, let's talk about these two female monsters. Yeah, I've collected some cool um, examples and some stories. So I would really like to share with you. Um, let me just share my screen for those of you that are with me on YouTube. Okay. 
I'm very excited to share some of these stories with you. If you're not on YouTube, that's all right, because I'm going to be talking about, excuse me, what's on the screen, as you know, so no worry at all. So the title of this episode is Skilla and Carib- Caribdis. I'm going to say that probably wrong a few times. Uh, sometimes Caribdis. I don't know why I stick the B in there, probably because the B is in there. But, you know, growing up in, in Romania, the way we read is the way it's written. <laughs> And so sometimes, uh, anyways, in, in the Greek, actually, um, it, she used to be called Herodis or Herodis. And so, again, not to confuse you any further, but let's talk about Scylla and Caridus, insatiable women. So one of the themes of today is an insatiable appetite, but particularly to women. Yeah? So as some of you may have seen, uh, on my shorts or TikTok or whatever on social media, I posted this slide this morning because it's my favorite slide because I love this art, which is done by Sebastian Rodriguez. I picked it up from um, villainsfandom.com. And if you ever need a reference for the art, please let me know in the comments. I have all my references. I just don't always want to bombard you with them, but um, it's just amazing. Yeah, it's amazing in so many ways. And also because I really like to start with this topic, which is women who eat. So one of the aspects of both Scylla and Gerardis, excuse me, is an insatiable appetite for destruction, but particularly for eating, consuming. Okay. And so I've been thinking a lot about the way that women who eat have been characterized. And I know that some of you perhaps are aware of this movement among, you know, within the feminist, um, well, we're all feminists. So among the world of this idea of women who take up space and this long, or maybe you're not as familiar, but this long debate about the reason why models are so skinny or the reasons why women in advertising are so skinny um, or the reason we found we find small women, dainty women attractive is because they don't take up space. And so they're non-threatening. And this has been a long, long debate among scholars, certainly feminist scholars. Um, and the idea that the larger the woman, the more space she takes up, literally like in, a, in an image or physically in, among men, right? So if you're in a room and you're dainty and small and you're among, let's say, men, you're you're unimposing. But if you are a larger woman and God forbid you decide to turn around or maybe wave your arms around or whatever, suddenly you're shoving, pushing, right? You're taking up space and taking up space is traditionally something that men do. Men take up space. Um, And so this idea that women who take up space, women who are massive, large, uh, and, and, and by this, I mean, in the sense of Scylla and the states and the sense of Caritas. So these massive um, whirlpools or male storms or these massive monsters. So in this way, um, again, we use those terms like unnatural, monstrous, frightening, horrifying. And of course, they are a threat to the heroes in their tales. Right. And so uh, we're going to look at how Scylla and Caritas are a threat to the hero. And of course, the hero is always male. Yeah. And again, ironically, okay, and correct me if you've come across a story because I have not. These, uh, let's say, two monsters, again, 
don't kill women. Now, this could be perhaps because women may not be on boats, you know, in the middle of the ocean. Perhaps that was something that the Greeks assumed was a male task to be, you know. But again, again, the destruction, the focus of destruction is always the hero. And the hero, of course, as we'll see, always overcomes. The other thing, of course, about women who eat is literally wanting to eat, literally having an appetite. So women are not supposed to have an appetite, right? Like we talk about um, so, so much the cliche of women going out for dinner on their first or second or fifth dates and having salads because, you know, they don't want the dude to be like, oh my God, you had a lobster and a steak and a hamburger. Uh, and so women have traditionally been starved. Yeah, starved. And if we think about the Spartans, for example, versus the Athenians, so Spartan women, so the Athenian, one of the complaints of, of the Athenians when they looked at the Spartans was that they fed their young women or even women too much. Yeah. And later on, like, for example, Livid and other uh, Roman writers who look back on the Spartans and the Athenians talk about how, and in fact, actually, even the, during the time of the Spartans, they talk about how the, the reason why Athenian women were having so many miscarriages or, or were dying in childbirth was because they weren't fed enough, right? And so the actual physical strength of eating um, calories is something that um, women have often, and certainly in our modern day period, been um, discouraged. And cer certainly from that Athenian Apollonian perspective, women are discouraged from having a big appetite, yeah, or for, from putting on weight. The only time we really see women being encouraged to put on weight is, of course, during the medieval periods or actually even the Renaissance periods where we have plagues and we have other issues. And so this concept of chubby white women sitting naked on couches uh, as the elite is is re really a representation of wealth. Literally, food is money. And so we have this deep um, prejudice or bias against women who eat, right? A lot, right? Even, you know, when I was a kid, I remember people saying, like, don't eat that third slice of pizza or don't eat that second dessert, right? Because again, remember to stay small, remember to stay hungry and remember not to satisfy yourself, which leads me to my third point, which is the pleasure of the body. You probably see that note here, the pleasure of the body. So anything that women want in, um, uh, I was going to say on mass, but anything that women want that is more than so sex, food, rage, joy. So for example, if a woman wants too much sex, oof, that, you know, she's a slut or a whore or whatever, insatiable. If a woman wants too much food, then there are all kinds of biases and, um, body dysmorphia. And literally we have, um, diseases, psychological diseases of things like anorexia, bulimia, et cetera, where women are literally giving themselves these mental health issues because of their connection to food yeah? or their disconnection to food, but it's their disconnection to feeling fulfilled. Does that make sense? When you eat until you are satisfied, when you have enough sex until you're sour, when you demand that sex be satisfying, 
you have power, right? When your belly is full, you have power. When your body is relaxed or satisfied, you have power. And the same thing applies to rage and joy. Um, and I'm going to talk about that a little more uh, when we get to Caritas uh, and anger. But the idea that women are not meant to be enraged, right? Rage is not something that we actually, and it's ironic because my derby name is Rage. <laughs> so I play roller derby for many years. But actually, my derby name, my full derby name is Rage in a Cage because my teammates noticed <laughs> how much rage I was withholding and that only when we were on the track and it, excuse me, if you don't know about roller derby, it's a game in which women basically hit each other on a track. Uh, it's kind of like, it's a bit like football on roller skates without the football kind of thing. Uh, so there's a lot, it's a very violent sport. And the goal of it is that you hit other people out of your way. And so my, my derby name is Rage in a Cage. And it was because my teammates kept going, let the rage out of the cage, let the rage out of the cage. Uh, because I had been trained and indoctrinated, and we all are for so long to keep the rage inside, be nice, right? And I had been trained, of course, that hitting other people, um, so expressing that rage was unacceptable. And, and I do agree that hitting other people is unacceptable. But even in sport, in a sport where you are encouraged to hit other people, this block for me was very difficult to overcome. It was very difficult for me to hit someone and then kind of go out for a beer after. I mean, I learned to do it and I learned to love it because it was real. And this is something that men actually have more access to because young boys will wrestle, will fight, will even get into a scrap, you know, on the playground or at soccer or football or whatever, all the games and violent athletics uh, that men use as a sort of catharsis, but girls, we're not allowed to do that. So girls sports, you know, ballet, gymnastics, I don't know, whatever is stereotypically defined as a girl sport, although thank God those things are changing. Um, but even soccer, you know, women in soccer don't go at each other very much. In fact, they're women in soccer are flipping literally monsters in the best sense of that word. They're amazing. They're incredible. And so for roller derby, for me, and I'm sure for many women, this has been an issue. Letting out that rage in a controlled, positive, encouraging um, environment was really revelatory, really uh, revelatory. And the same thing for joy. You know, God forbid you experience too much joy. God forbid you're too happy. God forbid you think you're wonderful. God forbid you're feeling yourself too much, right? Um, then other women, and I'm not sure that men notice that much, you tell me, but then other women begin to look at you like, uh, why do you think you're so perfect? Uh, why do you think you're so cool? Um, and so a lot of that, again, women are very constricted. And I'm not saying that men are not constricted because we could do a, you know, a whole season of podcasts in the ways that men are constricted as well by patriarchy, by these gender roles, by these gender limitations, and of course, that applies to the LGBTQ movement, uh, which includes, of course, trans people and, and all these all these human beings that are just trying to be human and define themselves as they want and live their lives as they want. And yet we are all um, voluntarily and non-voluntarily, because we all participate in the system, constricted, 
And so these types of monsters, monsters like Scylla and uh, Caridus really embody, literally embody the taboos uh, of our culture, particularly for women. So another really fascinating aspect of Scylla, actually, I'm talking and I'm not even reading you the story. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about Scylla's, uh, this is called Scylla, what's below the waist? Yeah. So let me tell you a little bit about uh, the Greco-Roman um, tradition of Scylla. So Scylla uh, is the name of um, these two, Scylla and, and Caridus are the names of these two rocks between Italy and Sicily, only a short distance from one another. So they're a bit like a, like a ocean tunnel. And in the midst of the one of these rocks, even today, right, which is nearer to Italy, apparently this was the location where Scylla, the daughter of Crataeus, Crataeus, a fearful monsters that barked like a dog, um, a fearful monster was her father. Now, she herself was also a fearful monster barking like a dog, according to um, Homer. She barked like a dog. She had 12 feet, six long necks and mouths, each contained three rows of sharp teeth. Okay. Opposite of the rock, of course, which we're going to talk about is uh, Caridus, who is, um, how do I develop um, an opening? Okay. Opening that three times, an opening in the ocean that three times a day swallowed down the waters of the sea. So think whirlpool, think sea storm, et cetera. And three times a day threw them up again, right? So there's a sort of spiraling of taking something down into the depths of the ocean and then spitting it back out. Now, Scylla, there are different sort of um, genealogies for her, according to different ancient scholars. She may have been the daughter of Forces or Forbas through Hecate. Uh, she may have been the daughter of Lamia, she is sometimes referred to as the daughter of Triton or Poseidon and Crates. It's a little bit, sometimes they talk about her being the daughter of Typhon and Echidna, which we talked about Echidna in previous podcasts. Um, sometimes she's described as a monster with six heads of different animals um, or only three heads. So she is this horrific monster, okay? Part female, usually the top part, and then um, part animal slash dog slash uh, snake. So I'm going to talk a little bit about her transformation in a minute, but I want you to think about, because this comes up over and over again, I've done so many of these uh, episodes. And one of the things that I, I want you to think about is, and it's you know, something I ask myself is why, and we talked about this with the Sphinx, I think, why is it that it's always the top half of the women uh, that are the sort of beautiful part? So a uh, head, hair, usually naked upper body breasts, whatever, you know, so the upper body down to the waist is a sort of beautiful maiden looking, um, female. And then the second lower part of the body is, uh, usually the monstrous part. So whether it's Medusa half snake, whether it's the Sphinx half lion, or whether it's Scylla, which is uh, a combination of snakes and dogs, why that? And I just Zimmerman brings up a really fascinating um, mention of this in her book where she talks about it's below the waist that frightens men. <laughs> it's what's below women's waists that frightens men. 
And I thought about that and I thought, that's genius because it's what's below the waist that seduces men. That is men. And this, and we're talking about these seducers, these uh, that are enticed by these beautiful women in mythology. They, it, you know, obviously want to have sex with these women, some type of intercourseal satisfaction. Yeah. And so that's the driving force. But when that driving force becomes monstrous, that is what's below the waist, becomes frightening, gross, I don't know, hideous, whatever, then the female is deemed as monstrous. And there is so much analogy here that I think applies to what's going on in our culture. And that is this idea that women are not, women are not non-threatening above the waist, right? But below the waist, that's when the question comes in. And it's a double-edged sword because that's both the sort of holy grail of seduction uh, or conquering for men trying to, you know, have intercourse with these women. And it is also the very essence of destruction. And if we add the concept of virginity in there, so that sort of deflowering, right? That's a nice word for it. Uh, or taking away a woman's value that's below the waist, right? And if we think about even today, like, you know, when we talk about sort of uh, what constitutes sex, you know, there's always that debate. Well, you know, as long as you're not having vaginal intercourse, you're not really having sex, right? So there's something about that vagina uh, that's magic. Yeah, <laughs> it's both uh, fearsome and fascinating. And I agree. I definitely agree. It is both fearsome and fascinating, uh, but we don't have to turn it into a monster with dogs and snakes in order to really appreciate her or it. Yeah. So let's talk about um, the transformation of Scylla because it is a bit disturbing. Yeah, so I'm going to read to you the transformation of Scylla. And I think for some of you, you're probably going to be like already seeing all the red flags as we move through it. Yeah. Uh, so let's see. So I'm going to read you Ovid's uh, transformation because I think it is, um, I don't know, the most repulsive, right? And it deals with Aeneas. And Aeneas, we're going to talk about in a minute too. Aeneas, of course, is the Roman version of Odysseus. And uh, we're, you know, we're told he's a descendant of the Trojans. And uh, he finds and settles or establishes Rome. And uh, the Romans trace their, trace their lineage back to Aeneas, who traces his lineage back to the Trojans. And so there's this connection. So Aeneas is also on a journey. If you don't know about him, he's also on a journey. And um, it's a very similar journey to Odysseus. So I'm going to use these two dudes, heroes, interchangeably. But um, so the fleet of Aeneas had made land. They had settled at nightfall on Zenkel's shelving sand. So anyway, they, they settled on this island. Scylla, sorry, that's my dog. Scylla infests, infests the right-hand coast. And on the left is restless Caridus. Restless Caridus. One grabs passing ships and suck them down to spew them back up while the other ringed below her hell black waist with raging dogs grabs men from their ships Scylla has a, 
a girl's sweet face. And if the tales the poets have passed down are not false, she was a sweet girl once. So she was a nice girl once. Many a sued her, sought her hand. So she was beautiful. Remember that beauty is dangerous, especially for women. Many a suitor sought her hand, but she repulsed them all, or she pushed them away all, and went to the sea nymphs, and she was the sea nymphs' favorite. And she and we're told how she eluded all of the young men's love. So she wasn't interested in dudes. Okay. All just because she's beautiful doesn't mean she wants men. Then Galatea, letting Scylla comb her hair, heaved a deep sigh. And she tells a tale about the, the Cyclops. Okay. Galatea ends the story and the group of the narrates or the other nymphs disperse and swim away. So they're sitting on the, on the, sorry, I'm skipping through because the story is much too long. I don't want you to be here five hours, but basically Galatea, Scylla is combing Galatea's hair. Galatea tells a story and then all the nymphs and Galatea just take off, whatever. Um, they go and sit in another part of the lake and Scylla turns around. Okay. She doesn't want to go too far out to, she didn't trust herself to go too far out to sea. Along the thirsty sand, she just sauntered around naked, or when she was tired, she made a little landlocked cove, and in its sheltered wave, she enjoyed her cooling bathe. So she's just chilling naked in the water. Suddenly, suddenly, breaking the surface of the sea, the sea god Glaucus appears. Of course he does. He saw the girl and stopped, his heart transfixed. I don't think it's his heart, but anyways. And then spoke to her spoke anything he thought might stay her flight. So he realized she was frightened and he was trying to talk her into staying. But Scylla fled. Her terror gave her speed. So she was terrified of him. Of course, you're a naked woman on the beach and this dude comes out. Of course, you're terrified. She reached a, the, a cliff top rising from the shore, a vast cliff by the strait that towered up one great peak. And she, she, she found a safe place there. So she stopped. She could not tell if he were a god or a monster, oh, ladies, isn't that always the case? So much was Glaucus trying to woo Scylla that he would have said more, but of course she fled. So he was enraged at his repulse, or at her repulse. He made in fury for the magic halls of Circe. Okay. Now, Circe, of course, is uh, the goddess slash witch of the island. Remember when Odysseus stops and she turns all his buddies into pigs. Anyways, so she's also a beautiful goddess with power. And he says, Glaucus says to Circe, oh, I, Circe, pray that I be yours. Spurn her who spurns you. Welcome one who wants you. No, I'm sorry. Circe says to Glaucus because she's in love with him. I, Circe, pray that I be yours. Spurn her, Scylla, who spurns you. Welcome one, me, who wants you. Okay. So basically, Cersei says, ignore that girl. Stay with me. I'm in love with you. But Glaucus answers, sooner shall green leaves grow in the sea or seaweed, seaweed on the hills that I shall change my love while Scylla lives. So basically, no, I don't want you. I want her. Then rage filled the goddess heart. You know, the bad thing women can't have. She had no power nor wish to wound him. Of course not, for she loved him so well. So she turned her anger on the girl he chose. In fury at his scorn, she ground together her ill-famed herbs. Oh, magic, bad witch. Her herbs of ghastly juice. And as she ground them, she sang her demon spells. Oh, now Cersei's a demon. 
And then there was this little bay bent like a bow, a place of peace where Scylla loved to laze around in the water, her refuge from the rage of sea and sky. And she's just standing there in the water, relaxing. Okay. Now, before she came, Circe had defiled this quiet bay with her deforming drugs or spell. And after that, sprinkled essence of noxious roots. Okay. And then her witch's lips had muttered thrice, nine times a baffling maze of magic incantation. So three and nine are magic numbers. That's a story for another day. Then Scylla came in and waded in way, way steep. So she just went in the water and when around her lions, she saw foul, monstrous, barking beasts. So her body is suddenly transforming. At first, not dreaming that they were a part of her, she fled and thrust in fear the bullying brutes away. So she's trying to get out of the water and run and push away the dogs, the snakes, the different body parts that are growing on her. But what she feared and fled, she fetched along. And looking for her thighs, her legs, her feet, found gaping jaws instead like Hades' vile hound, Cerebrus. Yeah. So now she was poised on a pack of beasts, no legs, Below her midriff, dogs ringed in a raging row. Glaucus, poor dude, her lover, now he's her lover, according to Ovid, wept and fled the embrace of Circe, who had used too cruelly the power of her magic. But he's no longer interested in Scylla. And so she stayed where she was, frightened. And when the first chance came to vent her rage and hate on Circe, she tried to use that vengeance on Odysseus. Okay? So there's so much in this story, okay? First of all, the woman-on-woman violence. Again, just like Athena and Medusa, we see that the one being punished by women is another woman. And, you know, I think anyone who watched Jerry Springer in the 90s could attest to the amount of women fighting, or Maury, the Maury show, or whatever other show was on TV, could attest of women fighting over men, right? So that they were... (laughs) The man is not getting the fight, but the women are. So the women on women violence, again, and I talked about this in many podcasts before, the way that women continue to compete, continue to put each other down, continue uh, to fight, which is part of this oppressive system and part of sort of subjugated uh, mentality or psychology, which is fighting each other in order to look better in the dominance eye. The other thing that's really fascinating about the story is the punishment again for beauty. So Medusa's punished for beauty. Women are punished for beauty. God help you if you're too beautiful and don't want men, right? Because then you will be a monster. So that which is attractive, that which is beautiful, but rejects or repulses men, certainly powerful men, becomes monstrous to men. And in this case, at the hands of a woman. So this tragedy, this story is so tragic. It's really heartbreaking, actually. Um, And I think that there is so much about um, Scylla that we can all relate to in some ways. What's really fascinating, of course, um, is that Scylla herself, instead of turning on Cersei or even Glaucus, she decides to try and eat Odysseus, yeah? So eating the hero, yeah? That's also a good uh, slide title, 
eating the hero. Okay. So we're told that when after uh, Odysseus stays with Cersei for a while and he's leaving her because, you know, Odysseus on his, you know, it took 10 years to get home and on his way home, he's distracted by all these women, right? Calypso, Cersei, blah, 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 blah. And he decides that to leave. And so Cersei tells him, she warns him um, about Scylla, right? And she tells him, make sure that when you, hold on one second, guys, I'm just going to pause. You probably won't notice, but I need to close my door. One second. Okay. Sorry, I'm back. Um, my neighbor decided to mow the lawn right now and this microphone picks up everything. So I don't want you to have that in your background. Okay. So where were we? Eating the hero. Okay. So Scylla decides to take her anger on Odysseus. And so I'm going to read to you the perspective of Odysseus as he is going through um, this. Oh, why can't I find the word for it? This tunnel of water. I'll find a good word for it after. Anyways, Cersei, like I said, had warned him, right? So be careful when you, when you pass through the strait. Yeah, that's a good word in this, through the strait. And so he says, this is Odysseus speaking. I had stopped short of mentioning Scylla, that inexorable horror to my crew. The crew in fear might have left their oars and huddled down inside the hold. And here I let myself forget that irksome command of Circe's. So he's saying, you know, she had warned me, but I forgot about it. She had told me not to arm at all. Don't take any weapons. So again, there's something fascinating about being threatening that Scylla will attack. But I put on my glorious armor, took a long spear on either hand. I mean, come on, Odysseus, and strode up to the half deck forward, since it was from there that I thought to catch a first glimpse of Scylla, that monster of the rock who was bringing doom to my competitors and companions. I could not as yet spy her anywhere. And my eyes grew tired as I peered this way and that towards the misty rock. So with much lamenting, we rode on and into the strait. That's the word, the strait. This side lay Scylla and this side, the other side in a hideous fashion, fiendish um, Charybdis. We had looked her way with the fear of death upon us. And at that moment, Scylla snatched up from inside my ship, the six of my crew who were strongest of arm and sturdiest. When I turned back my gaze to the ship in search of my companions, I saw only their feet and hands as they were being lifted up. They were calling to me in their heart's anguish, crying out my name for the last time. As when a fisherman on a promontory, on a promontory takes a long road to snare little fishes with his bait and casts his ox hairline down into the sea below, then seizes the creatures one by one and throws them ashore still writhing, so Scylla swung my writhing companions up to the rocks and there at the entrance began devouring them as they shrieked and held out their hands to me in extreme agony. Many pitiful things have met my eyes and my toilings and searchings through the sea paths, but this was most pitiful of all. When we had left the rocks behind us with Scylla and terrible care this, we came soon enough to a lovely island of the sun god. So... <laughs> Actually, I'm not right in saying that she takes out her vengeance on Odysseus because, of course, nothing happens to Odysseus, despite what a douche she is sometimes. Um, but six of his companions, his strongest companions, um, are killed while they go through the strait between Scylla and Caridus. And the fact that Circe tells him, do not arm yourself, as that will really um, antagonize 
Skilla, and he does because he's like, oh, duh, I forgot. And then that costs six of his men's lives. You know, that is what it is. And actually, that leads in perfectly to my um, connection between Skilla and the Kraken. So the Kraken in Pirates of the Caribbean, if you've never seen it, I have this great GIF, but for some reason in Zoom, the GIFs are not working. So, or the videos are not working. So, I'll figure that out. But, anyways, you guys remember if you've seen Pirates of the Caribbean, which I hope you have, when the Kraken comes up with the with the tentacles and wraps itself around the Black Pearl and then sinks it to the bottom. And the irony in that story is that, in many ways, of course, the Kraken can be equal to Scylla uh, because of the many legged octopi crab kind of. Um, well, in the, in the movie, it's very octopi-like. But at the same time, what's really fascinating is just like Odysseus, the Kraken is coming for um, Captain Jack Sparrow. And it's the crew in this case that escape, right? Well, they kind of tie him to the boat because, right, he doesn't want to sacrifice himself. Actually, just like Odysseus, he doesn't want to sacrifice himself. He would prefer that other people die and many people die instead of him anyways. Um, but in this one scene where the Kraken comes up and takes the Black Pearl, if you remember it, Captain Sparrow is on the boat. And so we could say that Scylla in the modern, through the modern representation of the Kraken, finally gets her Odysseus. Okay. I should also say as a side note before we move on to Caritas is that Scylla is also uh, eventually also becomes one of the guardians of the underworld. Um, at least according to Virgil, Virgil tells us that at the doors of Hades, there are various beasts. So Centauri and the double shaped Scylla as long uh, alongside with the beast of Lerna, the Chimera, Gorgons, and of course, other people that are at the doors of Hades, but Scylla becomes one of the guardians of the underworld. So that's kind of interesting for her eventual career. Okay, so moving on to Caritas. Yeah, the vagina al dente. Yeah, when I think about Caritas, and I have this image up here of this whirlpool, which is also, I think it's from, uh, it's either from Percy Jackson or um, Pirates of the Caribbean. Uh, this whirlpool with teeth. Right. So it's like this. Actually, you know what? Sorry. Not this reminds me if you're a Star Wars fan of the sand worms, uh, because sands in a way are deserts are also kind of sand ocean and the sandworm in Star Wars that ends up eating. Um, oh, my goodness. What's his name? The guy with the helmet. You know who I'm talking about. Um, and they made they they read. Oh my goodness, I'm terrible with this memory recall. Um, and so that sand beast also has those teeth or that gaping mouth, right? That sort of sucks in uh, people who fall in there. And so Caritas is the sort the initial kind of al dente monster. Um, but of course, she's in the ocean. And I say vagina al dente because. Freud loves to do this um, comparison between sort of the, the, the venomous um, sharp teeth in the mouth of Medusa and the, any opening, right? Any opening that is, that has like sharp teeth. And, you know, there's this long tradition that witches used to have um, teeth or yeah sharp vagina that could cut off your 
your penis. Um, and actually now that I'm thinking about it, sorry, I'm just, I'm just randomly remembering that there was a device. Oh, I have not referenced that, but maybe I'll look that up and put it in the, in our comment section. There was a device many years ago that was sort of an anti-rape device, or maybe it was being talked about, or maybe it was just sort of in theory. I don't know if maybe you guys might know more than me, but but I remember that it was something that you inserted into your vagina as a woman. And so if you were raped, it was like a rape protection. It would chop off a man's penis. And I'm just thinking about that. Like, pff, whoa, like that is this really in modern technological fashion. And it's the fear of that dangerous vagina as opposed to the young, innocent, easily manipulated vagina of youth. Um, you know, and now, now, sorry, now I'm totally going off here. Now I'm thinking also of porn, you know, and how porn, which is of course something that's made for men, by men, for men, is so obsessed with young vaginas, right? Uh, and that reminds me of this, or it brings the idea that that youth is, it's because it's easily manipulated and again, small and dainty and inexperienced where grown women and certainly women that take up space, whether literally or metaphorically are not so easy and they might actually hurt you if you try to seduce them. And so then this sort of, this sort of connection really between enraged women of experience versus the sort of young, like a young Scylla or a young Medusa that was raped or assaulted um, and then turned into a monster. Of course, that also leads me now, sorry, this is not in my notes. I'm just kind of randomly thinking about it now. That also leads me to think of, to, to connect to that idea that once women have been pursued or have been so-called conquered, or they've, you know, men have had sex with them and whatever, that they are no longer valuable. And in fact, that they become clingy, right? There's a, I hear sometimes this undercurrent and I don't know if you've heard it too. Let me know that if you sleep with a virgin, she becomes super attached to you, right? I hear men talk about this, like it's a norm. She becomes so clingy and attached to you and then you can't get rid of her. So I, I've heard men say, well, I would never sleep with a virgin because that's what happens. And now that I think of it, I'm like, so it's that clinginess or that idea that once I've had this body or this vagina, let's be honest, because that's the goal, um, it becomes monstrous to me. It becomes unattractive to me. It becomes dangerous to me if it starts to like harass me or follow me or actually want something from me. Um, so like, there's a lot there. I, I'm sorry. I'm just like randomly thinking. Um as we're going through this material, but there's a lot of interesting connections there. Um, perhaps that will be the title of my next book, Vagina Al Dente. I love it. I love that title. I'll tell you guys, I'll be honest. So Caridis um, has also a bit of a tragic story, though perhaps not as tragic as, um, as Scylla. So Homer, again, in the Odyssey, gives us several different accounts of the origin of Caridis. In one, she's the daughter of Pontos, who's the sea, and Gaia, who's the earth, who is who lays siege to the land with her waves. So in many ways, she's also a tornado, a hurricane. Yeah, Zeus, in anger, captured and chains the chained her to the seabed. 
In another tale, she's the, she, she was a voracious woman who stole the cattle of Heracles. And for this reason, Zeus cast her into the sea with the blow of a thunderbolt. So those are kind of the, the two stories about her. So either she was born of the sea and earth, which makes her powerful, but Zeus kind of chains her to the ground or Zeus throws her in, um, in the water as punishment for taking care of Heracles cattle. Uh, she is often also, she is sometimes identical or identified with uh, the sea monster thrice, who's, who is sometimes seen as the mother of Scylla and the grandmother of the Sicilian giant Polyphemus. Polyphemus. So Caridus often fights alongside her father Poseidon, especially in his feud with Zeus. And what she does when Poseidon is pissed at Zeus or they're in a battle is she engulfs his lands and islands in water. So she really is a tornado, a hurricane, a tsunami. Okay. Zeus, who is often angry at her taking land from him, uh, fights back by continually chaining her to the bottom of the ocean. And this, the Greeks describe this as her greatest curse. Yeah. She is also sometimes referred to as transformed into a hideous bladder of a monster with flippers for arms and legs and an uncontrollable or insatiable thirst for the sea, right? So she drinks, she drinks the ocean three times a day with everything that's in it and then spits out the ocean three times a day with everything that's in it. So I think that Caridus is the epitome, if I had to pick a monster, of insatiability because she is massively frightening. It is impossible to overcome her by any human, including Odysseus, who and Circe had told him, if you're going to pick between the two monsters, you're probably better off with Scylla because there's no way that you can conquer Caridus. Um, and so this idea that a voracious woman a woman who has an insatiable appetite is the epitome of monster. Okay. And the idea that men can skim by her and sort of escape her is the epitome of adventure, right? Like the overcoming of the greatest monster. Um, and that, and, you know, we often talk about the sea as a, we always talk about the sea as a female. And there are many men at sea and women at sea who talk about surviving, right? The rage of the sea. Or there are many times that we talk about the enraged sea. I think that's sometimes where we have the overlapping. Let me see if I have that next. Yes, perfect. Where we have the overlapping sometimes um, imagery of Caridus and Calypso. So Calypso is also an interesting um, goddess. Calypso is generally said to be the daughter of uh, the Titan Atlas and uh, Pleoline. Um, some, sometimes they talk about her being an Oceanid or the daughter of Thetis and Oceanus. Anyways, either way, she is a daughter of the ocean. Okay. And she has numerous powers, particularly around ocean powers. Yeah. She also, Calypso also in the Odyssey attempts to keep Odysseus on her island and make her his, make him her immortal husband. Uh, and in staying with her, he would be able to enjoy sexual pleasure forever. But of course, Odysseus says, no, 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 no. 
um, she keeps him as his prisoner, as her prisoner for seven years at Ojijia, but uh, eventually he he leaves and he escapes her. Okay. So because he misses Penelope so much. Anyways, um, so Calypso is often also associated with a raging sea, with an angry sea. So there's a lot of that that goes on. And sometimes her parentage and Cersei's parentage overlap. So there's a lot about Cal Calypso, I would say, is much more of an enchantress. And she bears the physical body of a woman on her island. So as an oceanid, she is kind of nymph-like almost, where I think Caridus is never described as a beautiful woman. She is always described as a power or a force, yeah, or, you know, something to be reckoned with. Certainly, in, in many ways, I would say she is a threat to Zeus or certainly a thorn in his size, aside and an equal to her father, who is Poseidon. So Caridus is no mere um, maiden and, I, and she never was. And she certainly never seduced by anybody or anything. Yeah. So the challenge for the heroes, both Odysseus, Aeneas, uh, the Argonauts, lots of these ancient Greek heroes is to try to overcome or bypass Caridus yeah? um, and to to bypass her rage and her destruction. There, it, it, the one thing that's really simple about Caridus is there's no doubt about her rage and destruction. She is irked and she's coming for you. And so in Percy Jackson, in the Sea of Monsters, um, there is this very clear, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Rep sorry, representation of this toothed, literally this toothed um, whirlpool. So it's not just a whirlpool, a male storm in the middle of the ocean, although literally it is when, you know, when there's no teeth coming out of it. But in particular, in the Percy Jackson, the Sea Monster, and in Pirates of the Caribbean, what we see is this sort of gapping void with teeth. It is quite a monstrous figure because it is on such a massive scale that this is not something you fight. Ever. So this is why I'm saying that Caridus has this massive power because you don't fight her. It's like fighting the ocean, like good luck, right? Your best bet is to hunker down and ride it out or escape her. And so in Percy Jackson, we see that exactly happening when, when in the, the Sea of Monsters, they are faced with overcoming or escaping Caridus. But of course, oh, and I wish my gift was working. Um, the hero always conquers all, right? And so in both in Homer's Odyssey and uh, Virgil's Aeneid, both Odysseus and uh, Aeneas overcome. So they are swallowed and swept back. For example, Odysseus, um, he holds on to this piece of wood uh, or the mast of his ship that is then swallowed by Caritas and, and thrown up by Caritas. And so because he holds on so tightly, he is able to escape her um, and go on with his, uh, with his journey. In Aeneas, um, it's something similar, but in his, in his case, um, Caritas is throwing around his boat. Yeah. Uh, he says uh, in the story of Virgil, Virgil says, uh, puts, 
Ania says, we were tossed up high on an arcing surge and then went down we went in the troch as the wave fell away, down to the very pit, the very pit of Caridus. Thrice roared aloud the reefs and the caverns of rock beneath us. Thrice we beheld the sky through a spattering flounce of spindrift. So we could barely see or catch our breath and time passed. And then finally the wind went down. We were utterly spent, not knowing where we were. And we ended up on the shores of the Cyclops. And so the heroes are able to outlast or hang on um, and outlast Caridus's rage. Similarly, if you watch Pirates of the Caribbean, um, Davy Jones and Davy Jones' uh, boat, ship, ship, um, is swallowed by what is termed Calypso, of course, in Pirates of the Caribbean. Although I don't know why. Well, I guess Calypso would have been a much more sexualized ocean figure. And like I said, Caridus is not a sexualized ocean figure. But um, you all remember that scene where the ships are spinning around in the whirlpool, or, right, of Calypso's rage that creates that whirlpool. And so the ships are swallowed and uh, poor Orlando, Mr. Orlando uh, Bloom will. Yeah. I haven't watched Pirates of the Caribbean in a while. Um, is uh, stabbed through the heart and uh, he takes the, sorry, Jack Sparrow stabs hit the heart. You guys know what I'm saying. Anyways, he ends up uh, taking the ship over. And in the next scene or whatever, a couple of scenes later, the ship, Davy Jones, ship comes up through the water as though it has survived that's what my gift was supposed to show you here but it's not working uh comes up through the water of course surviving um the uh, rage of calypso slash caritas and so the hero the hero conquers yeah the hero always always conquers and that's not something that that's something we've seen with the sphinx with medusa with everyone um the hero, the male hero always conquers the female monster, right? And that's, well, I mean, that's the adventure. The adventure is taking on the female monster and surviving, right? That's the thrill. That's the, that's the thrill for the audience and it's the thrill for the hero. And so although Caridus can't be literally killed because she has the ocean, she can be overcome or bested. Yeah, she can be bested. Um, and, uh, and in that way, the hero comes out always successful. So that is the end of our podcast for today. I hope that you have enjoyed this, um, episode as much as I have enjoyed putting it together. Um, every time I put together an episode, I do my best, of course, to get my notes and my research, but then like you see, um, sometimes as I'm putting my notes together and my research, I have these ideas and I make myself little notes, right? These relevance is like, how is this relevant today? How is this applicable today? Like, why do we care about these monsters, uh, these fantastical creatures of the past? And so one of my goals, not just for monsters, but for mythology is always to try and make it relevant to us because it is so relevant to us. Uh, mythology and storytelling and the stories that are repeated over and over and recycled over and over and then taught to us in a specific way are so important to our culture because they're foundational to our culture and they're actually foundational to the way that human society moves forward. 
And so one of my goals in everything I do is to try and apply or try to remind people or maybe try to show people that these are not just stories, you know, that you watch as a Disney movie when you're a kid and then forget about it. These stories continue to have significant applicable influence in the lives of humans today, in the lives of women, in the lives of men, in relationships, in in system infrastructures, right? In the way that we consider monsters, in the way that we consider um, rage or anger or insatiability or all these things, right, that we talk about. And so I hope that you enjoy that. Uh, Again, this is not a class, so it's meant to be fun. And I, I would love to hear your thoughts, your comments, your um, ideas, uh, you know, if anything comes to mind or occurs as, as you're listening to this and that you want to share, um, if so, please click subscribe and, uh, please share with others, uh, that you think might enjoy this as well. And I will see you all next week, next week. Like I said, we're going to do the harpies and the furies speaking of fury. Uh, we're going to do, we're going to look at those two monsters and those will be the last uh, for this season. For any additional episodes, uh, please check out my YouTube channel or my Spotify channel and uh, enjoy those as well. And I will see you all next week. Have a great weekend. Have a great week.